God, I'm going to do like a really depressed one because we've got no vitamin D. <laughs> yeah. Aye, that's, that's what's going to make the difference for you, Mark. Mm-hmm. Obviously. Fall asleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. I'm Mark. That's Chris. Hi, Chris. It's cold outside today. It's cold outside every day. <laughs> well, put your little hands in mine and... That's that's how my life feels right now. He's a fish shipper. Fucking <laughs> groundhog day. <laughs> fucking Scottish deep mm. midwinter groundhog day. Mm. It's horrible. It is absolutely thousand down outside. It's windy. You can't keep a brolly in one piece. Your jeans are constantly wet from the knees down. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. everything smells like damp. My life smells like damp. <laughs> Yes. So let's do a podcast about Queens of the Stone Age. Yeah. Mine back in like the early 2000s when we used to wear like those big like, kind of flares and I was stuff thinking like that. The exact well, same thing. I used to wear them and you used to always have that tide mark up to like your calf. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, my God. Remember the pavements were drier then though because everybody walking about in those kept the pavements. <laughs> they didn't have as many puddles back in the day. New metal was good for one thing. Yeah. Mm. We are joined by Vicky Hi. Yeah, this week. So. Mm. Hi, Vicky. How are you feeling? You recovered? I'm much better, thank you. Yes. Yeah, so this is what I mean, though. Everybody's covered. ill. I know. It's fucking rotten. It's rotten. We're broadcasting from Scotland. Don't move here, okay? <laughs> it's got a lot going for it, but it's fucking rotten and miserable right now. Uh, unless you want rickets. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. Uh, or scurvy. Sorry to get the year off to this kind of start But we had Siobhan's episode last week Which I honestly fucking loved Mm. Uh, I thought it turned out really really well Um, It was actually one I mean as a person that edits the show It's one of the easiest shows to edit I don't don't know why everyone was just clicking So that was the start of the year Um, Well they can make us feel better Chris uh, You could make us feel better Yeah how about this Drag us out of slump Uh, If you uh, We're we're going to take the focus away from the record club For for this week Uh, If you have listened to 10 episodes of Unsung Podcast, ask yourself, should I not just subscribe for four quid? Just for a wee bit. Just for a wee bit. Mm -hmm. 10 episodes. Are you one of those people? 10 episodes? 10 episodes? 40p. How many have we got, Mark? Yeah, 250. (laughs) Yeah, so 10 episodes. Jesus, a lot. Come on. Patreon.com forward slash Unsung Pod. He's got it right. Go on the minimum tier. And yep. just subscribe there And then at least Your conscience Is satisfied It'll pay some of the bills though It'll pay some of the bills Which You can make nice. a one-off Donation as well You could do that That's as well That's a good point yeah. yeah Ten episodes Ask yourself These guys sound miserable <laughs> What can I do To pick them up Yeah we love it When we get new subscribers We even talk to you We get access to our Banging Facebook group um, You get Bonus episodes And early access to all episodes apart from very recently <laughs> Talking about bonus episodes We've got a couple of those coming soon yeah. uh, Subscribers oh, We do have some, some interesting records <laughs> to talk about There's <laughs> got some classic sound as a pound action in, in the pipeline yeah. Interesting You've been very diplomatic <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. As, as much as everything else in this country Is trying to put us on a downer right now Vicky mm. I believe you had a rather enjoyable week doing the research for Queens of the Stone Age. I had a brilliant time. <laughs> oh my god, I forgot how much I love Queens of the Stone Age and how good they are. Mm. For the most part The most part, yeah Yeah. We asterisk that the audience can't see Yeah, and oh god, yeah So I totally get into it because recently I I bought um, the first album to debut on LP as well Was it the original or was it the reissue? It was a reissue, but I, and so it was just good going back and listening to all of the records again And just really reminded me how much I loved them Mm -hmm. So we're doing Queens of the Stone Age this week Mark I have to say, I, I, I'm i not really sure where you stand I in the band. Either. I get the feeling you don't much like them. Uh, I think I think they're a fucking great singles band and that's it. I don't think they've got a consistent record at all. Like he's so. punching <laughs> their lips in a threatening <laughs> manner. Um, okay. But I think, you know, I think their singles are some of the, probably a couple of them at least are some of the best rock, out and out rock songs ever written. And that's weird to say for a band who are not really a conventional rock band. They are not a conventional rock no, band. No, they are not. They're, they're, 
well, we'll get to it, but they're a bit of a one-off and that was kind of what mm-hmm. Josh Homme wanted. Uh, can we agree that we're going to say Hom and not Homme? It's meant to be Omi, I think, or Homme or something. I say Om, right? I say, can we just say Josh Homme? I say I'm happy well. to say Josh Homme, mm-hmm. right. but I'm sure he says Homme. I would we'll let him there. We'll let him correct us. Should we get Josh Hom on the phone soon? So, yeah, so that, Joshua, sorry. That's interesting. So, before we get dug in, did you have a more or less pleasant week doing the research? Uh, it wasn't, it definitely wasn't among the worst I've done for it that way. It was, right. it was I was not looking forward to it, but I, I was pleasantly surprised. Okay, so. I think I think I nominated this one really. Although we've spoken about Queens of the Stone Age for a long time, mm-hmm. it's our kind of start of the year big hitter up there with bands like Deftones and stuff like that. We try to come in with something big. Other non unsung bands, <laughs> yeah, non unsung <laughs> bands. Much, yeah. bands. Bands whose catalogue uh, has a bit of a disagreement around it. Mm. Uh, so for this episode, I have chosen the album Lullabies to Paralyze. From 2005 Interesting choice mm-hmm. um, Right away I will say I One of the reasons it took us so long to do Queens of Stone Age Is because I couldn't decide whether I was going to go for their debut Because their debut is a really, really special record to me mm-hmm. Really um, evocative of a time in my, my life, uh, in the university, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I like it a lot, but I've gone for lullabies. I'll make the case for that as we go on. Um, I'm really curious, obviously, if, you, if you're in the AAA group, you'll be able to basically come around our houses and slap us around the face if you don't agree. But even if you're just a casual listener that doesn't subscribe, please get involved in the conversation because this is one that had a lot of trouble deciding Uh, you're going to hear at length our opinions on these records Um, we'll do a a wee bit of basics on Queens of the Stone Age though because uh, there's a little bit to get through in terms of all their offshoots and other activities Um, they were technically formed in 1996 by Josh Hum largely uh, as a solo or it was kind of his project He's just the only continuous member to date. So this this conversation will kind of straddle and ignore the boundaries of Queen's Stone Age and Josh Holm a little bit. They're kind of blurred. Um, Josh was born in, I couldn't believe it, born in 1973. I thought he was older than that, in Palm Springs. And the age thing is pretty traumatic uh, because he formed his first band, Autocracy, at the age of 12 Aww. in 1985. He then formed Cats and Jammer at high school, which featured most of the members of Caius at the age of 14, which changed its name to become Caius. So, yes, Josh Holm was in Caius when he was 14. Four fucking teen. That's amazing. Like I was still learning how to wipe marsh when I was fourteen. <laughs> My God, man, that was traumatizing. Holy shit! Yeah. So, and despite Caius's sort of relative success by about the early nineties, he reportedly continued to work on his grandfather's farm uh, until the first Queens of Stone Age album. I think that was when he was about twenty-five, so as not to quote lose his grip in reality. So he was only twenty-five when the first Queens of Stone Age album came out, and Josh Homme at that point felt like he'd been in the music industry quite a while mm-hmm. um, because. As we'll mention, he was also in Screaming Trees for two years in that, one of the big grunge bands of the era. Caius, at the time, had a cult following in and around LA. Uh, they did things like they threw these desert parties, which became quite famous, where they would people would drive for miles out into the desert and they would set up using generators, um, have these big, I'd imagine, quite heavily drug-fueled parties in the middle of nowhere. Um, they were spotted by the musician Chris Goss and producer Chris Goss, also mm-hmm. masters of reality. I 
who kind of mentored and produced them. I kind of saw the potential in this young band and wanted to wanted to kind of maximise it. When when you hear Masters of Reality, you can hear some of what Josh Holm picked up from Chris Goss in terms of the production and and, and such like. Master Reality, some of the recordings are quite lush, and I think you hear a lot of that in Queens of Stone Age as well. Um, Hom was under 18 uh, when uh, Caius got signed, so his parents actually had to sign his, his recording mm-hmm. contract, and he continued to play with Caius till about 1995. There were a few offshoots of Caius, like Brant Bjork and Garcia went on and did various things, and I think they even did a reunion under a slightly different name, but Hom declined to to be involved um so after 95 he moved to seattle and initially kind of gave up on being a professional musician apparently went and studied business Uh, but when he was there he reconnected with friends for the music scene like ben shepherd of soundgarden the bassist uh, and mike johnson of screaming trees i think so josh home replaced mike johnson actually in screaming trees for the 1996 lollapalooza festival and then went on to play with screaming trees for a couple of years and it was actually mike johnson who replaced lou barlow and dinosaur jr Mm-hmm. On the base um, Apparently Caius uh, had been notorious For getting in backstage fights With other bands When they were playing in LA They would kind of roll into town And cause a bit of a ruck I mean, bearing in mind that Nick Oliveri and people like that Were on the scene It's it's not hard to imagine But I think even back then Even as teenagers I mean, I would imagine In a lot of places they were playing They probably weren't even allowed to Meant to be in the venues they, There was a slight jock vibe Going on, you know A bit of, bit of roughhousing um, and I think that weird combination of like alternative figures, rock musicians, sort of generally liberal types, artist types, but there's definitely a jockiness to them that kind of ties in with some of the kind of classic metal figures as well. You know, like we were talking about Eddie Van Halen mm-hmm. and his fucking, mm-hmm. what are those cars called again? He went, he got an assault vehicle. An assault vehicle that he, he fucking drove onto Fred Durst's lawn. Yeah, right. he his shit back, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd gone, yeah, he didn't like Fred Durst at all. Okay. No. <laughs> I don't think that was a good combination of personalities no. either, no. really. Um, and then I guess I'm not saying Josh Holm is anywhere near as jock-ish as Ted Nugent, but you know what I mean? On that scene, despite the fact these were musicians there was a fair bit of it's libertarianism more, more kind of stoner though is it not it's like if it was the breakfast club it wouldn't there wouldn't be the Emilio Estevez they would be the other the kind of stoner rock guy do you know what I John mean John Bender John Bender that's it yeah they'd be the John Bender Fair point. Um, <laughs> so yeah, as I said, he was in Screaming Trees for 96 to 98. He actually appeared on Jules Holland with him in 96. Um, hence, he had close links with Mark Lanigan. Apparently him and Mark Lanigan got on really well. Mm, um, but Screaming, Screaming Trees were also known for being a quite fractious band. There was a lot of infighting. And apparently that unrest in the band eventually convinced Josh Holm to kind of start his own project for mm-hmm. a bit of stability. I mean, Screaming Trees didn't last long after that anyway. So he left to do Queens of Stone Age properly as his own project. It wasn't actually initially called that. It was initially called Gamma Ray, but they got a legal cease and desist notice from another band of the same name. I think the band were actually German, though. German power metal band, yeah. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not entirely sure how a German power metal band in the kind of nascence of the internet finds out about some wee guy in LA that, or Seattle at the time that's starting a rock band called Gamma Ray. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, you can imagine with uh, you know Josh Holmes' connections already at that point that there's definitely people in the industry that know him and nexus them nexus their way to Gamma Ray because they're not they're not necessarily a small power metal band, you know. No, so. but I, I mean I still think it's more likely to be he was trying to get a MySpace. <laughs> Gamma Ray were trying to get their MySpace page set up and they could only get Gamma Ray one. <laughs> 1996 I don't think yeah. my, MySpace wouldn't maybe know about then would it no it was a joke oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. I'll put on a red nose right um, sorry yeah so he had to change the name and that became Queens of the Stone Age um, there's a good quote from him at the time about what exactly he wanted from that band and I think it's really relevant both to what you said earlier on and just going forward can I just say Queens of the Stone Age I think was a nickname for Caius that somebody had come up with 
because they thought Kings of the Stone Age was too macho. So they, 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 it was kind of a joke that they picked Queens of the Stone Age and it was like, it might have been that Chris Goss guy actually. Josh Rom took it. It's a dead weird name, but it, I mean, it I has, like it. as a result, become kind of iconic. Um, so he, he was quoted as saying though about uh, the reasons for starting the project. I remember thinking, no one's playing this trance rock music that you can dance to, but that's primarily because I hadn't heard bands like Can. I thought I could try to do this thing that hadn't really been done, and then I found out it had kind of been done, but not very much. You just kind of try to carve your own space. I just wanted to start a band that within three seconds of listening, people knew what band it was. Mm-hmm. Which is an interesting summation of Queens of the Stone Age. Achieved not just by the music, but achieved by the sounds and the tones as well, which we'll touch on later. Uh, it's, I, did, I think I read him saying that he thinks that Queens of the Stone Age is like a rock version or a band playing trance music, dance music kind of thing, but the, the rock and roll version of it. Some of the stuff, the earlier mm. stuff, the kind of more like regular John, psychedelic, crowdy stuff, maybe, yeah. And I'm, pro- I'm probably the latest album as well. It's, well, maybe not trance, but it's definitely very 70s disco, very dance. Aye, it's quite disco. Uh, so he'd also been doing the Desert Sessions since 97, the Desert Sessions were these collaborative projects, I'd imagine probably initially fueled by those parties, uh, but they just sort of expanded to involve all of these musicians, I mean that's where Eagles of Death Metal started basically, that, in 1998 he, fo- he co-founded Eagles of Death Metal with Jesse Hughes, but they'd first appeared as a kind of recorded entity on Desert Sessions 3 and 4, you know they kind of used to release them in twos. Desert Sessions also featured all kinds of great stuff like PJ Harvey um, did did a song with Josh Homme uh, that came out as a single uh, is it Crawl? I think it might be called And yeah, there's just loads and loads of really good collaborations in those Desert Sessions albums. And you can actually hear early versions of things like Make It With Chew and A- Is it Avon? Is Avon maybe? Avon, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, a, a lot of ideas got jammed out and then quite often the bands would go away uh, and then turn them into like fully realised songs. Um, Interesting point, they released a, a, a Desert Sessions record last year, um, first one in, first one since 2003 I think, mm. long time, and there's a song with Matt Berry on it. Oh really? Mm. Yeah, called Chick Tweets. <laughs> and, well, oh, sorry, enough, Chic Tweets, sorry, Chic Tweets. Uh, Josh Holm was in an episode of Toast of London. He was, yeah, I remember yeah, that. Yeah. Um, I think he got his hand chopped off. I think he got his hand or his fingers chopped off. Something mental like that happened. <laughs> Obviously, Toast was responsible for that. Snell in a monologue. You made me go out and smash in my pouch. I was just lying on the couch, you big grouch. Yeah, there's a there's a singer on that song whose whose voice is put through like heavily put through a vocoder and nobody knows who it is because uh-huh. it's got a ridiculous. You like, got a theory? No, like it, people think it's either Dave Grohl or Trent Reznor or somebody, but it's it's somebody talking in like a faux English accent. They've got a German, a fake German name. I can't remember their name, <laughs> and it's like pitch shifted right up, and you've got Matt Berry talking in the middle of the song and all that. It's really fucking out there. <laughs> It's cool though I mean the, the Desert session stuff Could be hit and miss But there were some Really really good moments Three and four And five and six Had some really good Early sort of Queens of Stone Age Type stuff on it um, Eagles of Death Metal By the way Which we, we have to Make reference to uh, I think Anyone who's listened To the show For any length of time Will probably know I'm not the biggest fan Of the band But that's got a lot To do with the, the Jesse yeah, more more than anything, really. Um, they he's not processed his uh, he's not processed his trauma very well, has he? No, no, <laughs> uh, he's just spreading it all about. Mm. Um, the name apocryphally comes from Jesse and Josh watching a man in a bar dance to the Scorpions' "Wind of Change." <laughs> <laughs> um, some and then they later remembered this and said they were the 
they didn't want to be death metal, but they were, I can't remember. Anyway, something to do with that. Um, despite focusing on Queens of Stone Age for quite some time, in 2008, in an interview, Hom maintained that he is, in fact, in two bands, not just one, and the Eagles of Death Metal is not a side project for him. It's another band. I That feels like lip service to me. I don't think... I don't know if I'm a neutral observer, but I just don't see any way in which that's true. You just don't... I mean, it's it's, it's not true. <laughs> is he not their official drummer on all the recordings? Is that not what it is? But it doesn't, it doesn't tour with them. I think that's what it's maybe, supposed to be. Uh, maybe, but it's, it's just... I mean, no matter how many times he says it, I'm not going <laughs> to fucking believe it. It sounds like bollocks, and it's maybe just to keep Jesse happy. Um, Jesse who? Jesse Hughes. Jesse who? <laughs> <laughs> no. Who's he? He's a singer for the Eagles Death Metal. And how come he's bad? Uh, well, apart from the fact that he's a total libertarian gun nut, like a mix sort of Trumpist fanny. Um, it really came with the four. That really came with the four after the battle. I can't tell because his his band were playing. Oh, that, night. that shit! Right, oh right, yeah, they're shit. <laughs> fuck that. Fuck <laughs> those guys. No, I've, I've heard, I've heard of, I've heard all these chat on stage and all that pish as well. Yeah, so he, he like after. Uh-huh. The, I mean, the battle clan thing's horrific, but after the battle clan, he went and said that he thought the the, the, the security yeah. guards, some of whom died, try to protect people. Were part of it because yeah. they were Muslim. No, I heard all that. Um, yeah, yeah, he's he's just a fucking hick, the guy, you know. And I don't know him personally, but you know, you're allowed to make, you're, you're allowed um, to come to certain conclusions about people when they say things like that. I'm not saying it's by far and away not the be all and end all of the man, um, but yeah, there's a lot of things he said that are fucking reprehensible, and you know, you're yeah, no, entitled to yeah. have reservations about him. I think actually their their first album, that peace, peace, love, death metal. was released in 2004 and actually there's some pretty decent songs on it it's a lot of their stuff sounds like some queens of stone age songs so there's songs that pop up in the queens of stone age catalog at times where you're like i can imagine that being an eagles of death metal song and i'll pick out a few as we're going through them but anyway yeah by the way eagles of death metal i don't think this really uh translated over here in the uk i don't know what it's like for listeners uh, in europe and australia and stuff but in the states they were a fucking insane advertising sync band they did adverts for nissan budweiser wendy's ask.com <laughs> comcast and pontiac amongst many many more i mean they were really really raking it in with advertising music so yeah um but Eagles of Death Metal toured early on with Joan Jett, Strokes, Peaches and Guns N' Roses and in fact Axel Rose referred to them on stage as the Pigeons of Shit Metal. Yeah, I remember that. Which uh, <laughs> is quite funny. <laughs> which, <laughs> when they just finished playing as well, which is pretty weird. But, uh, that, like that, Axel Rose gets on with nobody, so it's hardly surprising. Yeah, something like that, that spawned a, a line of t-shirts by the band The Eagles of Death Metal put out a <laughs> Pigeons of Shit Metal line of t-shirts. Axel Rose, I was reading That's this, this will come in later on, um, um, at uh, Rock in Rio 2 sat and ate noodles with all of the security staff until half three in the morning nice apparently they said he was lovely I, I, can, I can believe he's probably a decent guy he's just got like he's I got all the rock star bullshit as I, well I think he's a knob I think yeah. he only is a, you know stopped clocks right twice <laughs> a day I think it just so happened he was nice by accident mm-hmm. anyway uh, yes Vicky you mentioned them Crooked Vultures uh, they started them Crooked Vultures with Dave Grohl and John Paul Jones John Paul Jones oh, really? from right. Stinky Led Zeppelin mm-hmm. Must have been like for both Dave Grohl and Josh Robin, that must have been mind blown. Mm-hmm. Massive Led Zeppelin fans. It's, I can't even imagine what I'd like to play with somebody that you idolise. Like Dave Grohl's definitely huge. He's got Led Zeppelin tattoos and stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Must have been something else for me. I wonder if it was a payday for John Paul Jones, though, because I mean, he's been, remember, he did an album with Diamanda Gallas and people mm-hmm. like that, and he did, he recorded the Butthole Surfers. 
I think he's friends with Dave Grohl. I think he is friends with Dave Grohl, and he's. A, I think he appeared on the Foo Fighters record. I Probably, think. yeah. Or he did something with them anyway before the them Crooked Vultures. But I do know that he's, he's he is friends with Dave Grohl and has been like for a while. Them so. Crooked Vultures are a decent album. It's it's a bit like Queens of Stone Age. <laughs> Spoiler alert! Mm-hmm. It, it has like. A handful of good songs on it Like most of the Queen's of Stone Age albums <laughs> Which is probably more than you can say for Eagles of Death Metal I think the Crooked Vulture seems slightly better Although yeah. less prolific Also I think um, Josh Homan Mark Lanigan did the music for Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown yes. TV show. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, last little note, I think he does a cameo in the movie Hot Rod. Remember that? I remember the film, I don't remember him being in it. He, he's, he's credited as Cloak <laughs> I think Whatever that is uh, So I've seen Queens of Stone Age twice mm-hmm. uh, In very very different surrounds mm. I saw them at the Cat House in Glasgow Which is a 500 cap venue mm-hmm. And I saw them at the Hydro in Glasgow Which is anything up to a 16,000 cap mm-hmm. venue mm. And that's interesting to me because it's a band that I very much got on at the ground floor. I got the first record as soon as I could find it. I remember reading a, 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 a it was a one page article in Kerrang about them, and Dave Grohl had mentioned how much he loved this record and that everybody should check it out, and that it was kind of uttered. Yeah, and I I got it I think from Avalanche on Coburn Street in Edinburgh for anyone that remembers Avalanche by the way, which is now a restaurant, which is the window. That, is it, what's her name, is Scarlet Witch gets thrown through or is it Vision gets thrown yeah, through? One of them, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, in um, one of the uh, Avengers. Uh, Infinity War. Infinity War. That's also the same scene with the, the kebab shop. Yeah. Which is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, I feel busted at laughing in the cinema and everyone's like, why are you laughing? Like, can you see what it says? Like, in that window, like only, only Scottish people would get that. And now I can't remember what it is it says. It's just something really Scottish, like ridiculously so, very specific. Really parochial. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that used to be Avalanche. And I used to get a lot of really formative records in there I think I got Harmacy by Sebado in there as well But it was interesting seeing them across the span of their career Including up to now um, The Cat House yeah. gig I think was I'm, I'm going to say I think it was when Rated R came out 2000 And it was heaving And it was brilliant And it was you know really quite see, intimate It's a 500 cap venue But it, it, you felt close to them you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. For a band of that scale or that would become that big, mm-hmm. it, it was amazing. It was amazing. Whereas um, the the Hydro show, I was sitting up in the nosebleeds. I was so far away, I couldn't even tell who was playing drums. Was that the like clockwork one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was at that, but I was standing. Yeah, I was so far up, I couldn't tell who was playing drums. It was the boy from Mars Volta, wasn't He's it? He's the other drummer, John Theodore. Is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I just ended up watching the big fucking monitors for mm-hmm. the whole show, and I was like, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Why did I come to an aircraft hangar to fucking mm-hmm. sit and watch a giant telly? That's what it feels like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was really, really different experiences. And there were good moments in that show. I mean, it, it, it sounded fine, mm-hmm. just a bit distant. But that Cat House performance was fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. And really, really memorable, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nicola Laveri on the scene. Mm. <laughs> Unpredictable, <laughs> as, as you like. Um, Josh Holm. He's a little bit of a divisive character these days. Um, I think he used to be a bit of a golden boy, but he stick around long enough, I suppose. Um, but there's definitely a, a few things about him that maybe started to sit uneasy with different people. Yeah, I would say so. What comes to mind that was off the top of your head? Kicking a photographer in the face. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that's. Yeah, I think that's probably the highest profile one. Brody Dal says that he had butted her so hard that she saw stars. Really? Mm-hmm. Do you remember purpose? that? Do you remember that in the Sullivan yes. episode? Mm-hmm. We spoke about that. In I the remember Sullivan. us mm-hmm. talking about something, but that's interesting because Nicola Verri was he bumped Nicola Verri at the band for it. Yeah, for domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there you go. Mm. Um, there's an interesting anecdote about Josh Holm, which doesn't 
justify any of the nonsense he gets up to but it will become relevant later on it's it's on their wiki actually but I'll read a wee bit of it um, after years of heavy touring and drug abuse severely weakened his immune system Hom contracted an MRSA infection during a routine knee surgery in an attempt to restart his immune system surgeons used a breathing tube that became stuck in his throat choking him and leading to a cardiac arrest they used a defibrillator to revive him. The experience left him physically and mentally weakened with a severely compromised immune system and doctors confined him to bed rest with no human contact for three months. He became depressed and considered quitting music, eventually finding himself unable to produce any new music at all for almost two years. Uh, he said that experience greatly contributed to the making of like clockwork. Um, and he mm-hmm. credits Transcendental Meditation with helping him recover. We'd actually been speaking mm-hmm. about that in a totally separate mm-hmm. uh, capacity recently. I didn't know that you'd had that experience. Yeah. Um, so that must be post-era vulgaris then. It was, it yeah. was yeah. yeah. I knew I knew that because I know, and you can tell, that like clockwork, a lot of it's about depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's exactly. So that's going to become relevant when we start going through the records. I just mm-hmm. wanted to get that in there. Um, in terms of his own misadventures, there's there's a few of them. I mean, I think there are varying degrees of seriousness. The domestic violence one, I would imagine, would clearly be the most odious. Yeah. Especially uh, paired with the the audacity of kicking Nicole Laverie out of the band for domestic violence and going on Radio 1 and announcing it on Zane Lowe's show that that's why Nicole Laverie was no longer in the band. Um, so yeah. Minus- Apparently they made up like four weeks later. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They made up straight, like, a cu- that's what he said, a cu- we've been friends since a couple of weeks after I kicked him out of the band. I wonder how Nick felt about him announcing it on Radio 1. There's a quote in an interview for The Guardian. 2005, which is when this album came out, funnily enough, Lullaby to Paralyze. And basically, they talk a little bit about Nick Oliveri being kicked out of the band. And he says, It's, well, you know, some things are more important than friendship, and one of those things is music. Um, but then he goes on to say, like, kind of contradict himself soon afterwards by basically saying that, you know, it's good to have, like, friends that will always stick around no matter what you do. And, and Nick Oliveri is certainly one of them. He's, he's, I think he appears on Light Clockwork as well. He did, yeah. Yeah, and do some band vocals. Um, mm-hmm. But the interviewer asked him if, if, it, if it's about ruthlessness And I think that pretty much is the way that I think of Nick Home It's like ruthless Yeah, Joshua Yeah, jo- Nick, who's Nick Home? Nick Home, I don't know Let's ponder that <laughs> for the next episode and a half uh, But yeah, I think I see him as being quite a ruthless person yeah, It's a single, singularly focused project mm-hmm. Which just bends to his every whim mm-hmm. You know, and that's a good thing. I'm, I'm one of my favourite artists. Is that is exactly the same, or was exactly the same? You know what I mean. Um, which probably explains quite a lot of why they've managed to accrue this legacy. I think he could probably be. Ar- Maybe he could argue that he's like the last rock star. I'm not talking about your Machine Gun Kellys and all that, who are mm-hmm. a different kind now. But he's like the last quote unquote authentic. Mm-hmm. You could say. Yeah, I mean, like a generation that longer exists. I think he is like a slightly modern reboot of some of those seventies. Mm-hmm. Rock stars, you know the denim-clad seventies rock stars. He's he's got a bit of that about him, and I think he courts that. Yeah, I do think he mm-hmm. is. Yeah, he is quite like a grunge version of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, he is quite single-minded. I think you're right, and especially as the longer the band's gone on, the more the band has become a vessel for his ego. Uh, we'll talk about it, but the the artwork for villains to me was a huge landmark moment, and mm. Josh Holm believing the hype around Josh Holm. It's the same person that did the artwork for Late Clockwork. Yeah, it's the content head. of it as well, though. Just right. having him, him on the front of it, that just is like, yeah. I know, like a dro- like a Smashing Pumpkins album that was just Billy Corgan's face in the front. You know? There is quite a big change in the last two albums. I think that last album in particular, even the videos. Have you seen any of the videos for the? Not from the most recent one, though. No. I don't really care at all, but we'll talk about that later. Um, but probably we can touch on this later on when we talk about it. But as someone that's come to it completely fresh, it, from the very beginning, it feels like it was always revolving around his ego. Mm-hmm. Nick Oliveri comes in for two records. Mark Lanigan is there doing bits and pieces, ostensibly in the band, um, but never really fully in the band. Nobody's ever really fully in the band. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you go back and reflect on the first record, which is solely his vision, mm-hmm. you know, there is nobody to fuck around with that to begin with. He maintains this idea that he was always going to be doing three records to get people to the record that should be what Queens of Stone Age sound like, getting ready for that, which is Songs for the Dead. Um, and it started with shh, like getting rid of all the stoner rock Queens of the Stone Age. I think, I think he's retrofitted yeah. that. I think that's bollocks. Well, he said that, he said that before. Um, he, he was saying that when uh, 
Oh, he said he, he actually says in an interview for rated uh, for rated uh, R that you know this is deliberately about you know trying to get people used to our sound and making making it feel weird and get used to weirdness. That just sounds like a load of push to me, though. You know, I, I mean, it's, know, it's like, like he's bit about oh, I'm in Eagles of Death Metal as much as I'm in Queens of Stone Age. It's like no, you're no. I think I think it's his way of justifying the fact that he always had one eye in commercial success, and this is him rationalising how he's done it. Yeah, well, we'll put it this way though We're not saying that from the first album He was like, right, I've got a set of songs ready That are going to be incredible But I'm keeping them for the third no, album I mean, that's, that's no, not, I, that's I know not we're not, what he's saying I know we're not yeah. literally saying that yeah. But the notion that you would have that design No, you wouldn't You'd want to cause a big splash When you could cause a big splash I just, It's one of those fucking contrived fucking PR things when you're doing like a promotional tour for a record and you don't know what the fuck to say you come out with some fucking nonsense like that it just I really don't buy anything I think it sounds like a load of shite I, I mean I, I think the way that I've looked on it since getting familiar with them there is definitely a progression which is moving more towards that songiness of songs from the dead whether, whether or not that is by design it definitely goes in that direction for us for us for a purpose no. I mean, to me, there's a bell curve with, with Josh Homme and his sort of ego. And I think early on, yeah, you can totally understand it. It's his, it's his project. But even by the second album and certainly by the third album and on into like lullabies and stuff, he seeds certain writing duties to different people. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not all written by Josh Homme. And I think that's key when we're talking about, oh, this is just his, his project. It's like, no, there's a period in Queens of the Stone Age where actually, I'm not saying it's a democracy, but Nicola Oliveri's writing tracks, even the fucking keyboard player writes track, a track at one point. You know, it's like, there is much more of a spread of duties. When Mark Lanigan comes in, you can tell that he's got a lot of respect for Mark Lanigan, so he has a lot of input. I don't think it is a pure ego vessel at that point but then I think it starts to come back by the kind of like clockwork post era of Olganis. I would say by this album it starts to come back but we can discuss that mm, okay um, just to, to go through some of these other highlights uh, in 2004 when we're talking about his misbehaviour he assaulted Black Dahlia of the Dwarves at a club in LA um, he pleaded no contest he was given a restraining order and three years suspended sentence was that after he was in Songs for the Dead? Songs for the Dead 2002 yeah because yeah, yeah, he's, uh, he's uh, one of the radio announcers oh is he mm. right well there you go um, in 2008 quite notorious this one uh, he reacted angrily to having a shoe thrown at him by an audience member which yeah. to be fair you would probably mm, be a wee bit angry about that um, shouting chicken shit fucking faggot and 12 year old dickless fucking turd and I think a bit in keeping with what I was saying about his jockness I don't want to say jockiness because it's quite a different thing <laughs> <laughs> his jockness that kind of language that kind of bullshit. Yes. It kind of goes hand in hand with that. This big six foot plus denim clad fucking ginger Elvis sort of guy mm-hmm. that he just has that fucking hick touch to him. Um, he tried to backpedal, uh, but I think the reaction to his apology at the time was quite mixed. There's a music journalist called Tim Jones who pointed out that attempting to prove his pro gay stance, Hom points out in his letter that he also called the guy a pussy and threatened to have anal sex with him. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, Josh. Yeah. In 2013, I don't disagree with this one, he took exception to being frisked by Jay-Z's security at the Made in America festival and said that uh, if they searched him, then he wouldn't play. He was basically oh, like, right. it's your mm-hmm. choice, you can search me mm-hmm. and we don't play, mm-hmm. or you can not search me and we'll play. Um, and then he was given a bottle of this champagne, champagne that mm-hmm. Jay-Z had launched and he just smashed it. He said, I'm not going to no. be part of a... Jay-Z brand. said he gave him this bottle of champagne he wanted to get his photo taken with it. Well, he said it was like a total kind of like staged thing. It was a branding stunt. Aye, it was, yeah. it was really awkward and yeah. he just didn't want to do it. So he was like, nah. Um, as you mentioned, in 2017, he kicked photographer Chelsea Lauren um, kind of via kicking her camera backwards into her face. Um <laughs> I think he knew it was going to hit her face. Yeah. It wasn't like he was like, I just meant to kick the camera. Well, mm. see, I'm I'm not disputing that he meant it. I'm just, I, I just do want to kind of flesh this out a wee bit. First of all, she stayed and took photos of all the other groups that night and then went to hospital. I'm not saying she wasn't hurt, but I'm pretty sure she figured out I should probably go to hospital if I want to take any action against this guy that kicked the of camera into my face. Um, he he apologised publicly a short while after. To me, like, have you seen the footage of it? 
Yes. Yeah, the footage is totally perplexing because he initially claimed that he was kicking lighting equipment, but she maintains that he made eye contact with her before he did it. What I don't get is it's, it's quite a nonchalant flick that he does. It's not like he does like a big kind of heel first sort of stormtrooper stomp, you know. It's it's a little kind of like flick with a toy shoe. It's not a big swinging boot, but equally it's just so totally bizarre and unnecessary that mm-hmm. the force of it is almost totally irrelevant. Like I really want watching it can't understand what the fuck was going through his head I know it's, it's like flicking a toe or not like why are you just kicking that woman's camera like what mm-hmm. is the fucking point mm-hmm. like he's walking out in that kind of walkway thing in the crowd and he just does it mm-hmm. it's so totally needless mm-hmm. and I, I've got absolutely no sympathy for him because it's like it doesn't all of the bullshit all the excuses aside and the fact that she stuck about and then went to hospital like fuck that it's just like you totally brought that in yourself like there was no justification or any motivation that I can see for doing it other than just sheer petulance why because he didn't want him to take his picture I don't know just a sheer moment of like abuse of power mm-hmm. just in a position to just be a fucking bam it's that again that, that jock vibe that he's got you know, he could trip her up, so he did. Like someone going by in the corridor with their school books or something like that, you just trip them up to be a wido. I mean, it's not the worst thing that's ever happened. It's just, it's really distasteful. Um, for me, though, the, the the thing that alienated me the most for Josh Holm was to do with the Bataclan incident and Eagles of Death Metal. Um, Eagles of Death Metal being a band that he started, being a band he maintains as his other band, being a band that I would suggest is not his other band in the same level as Queens of Stone <laughs> as his other band. But anyway... So the tragedy happened and there was a fairly powerful extended format Vice TV interview uh, shortly after which had Jesse on a couch with the other band members and I remember watching it and I remember it partway through this interview Jesse starts making reference to Josh Homme. Josh Homme wasn't there was he? Josh Homme wasn't in Paris, he wasn't on tour with the band at all. Jesse starts bringing him into the conversation like oh the first thing I thought was I need to phone Josh, I need to get help from Josh, I need Josh to help me. And then Josh Holm just happens to be off camera at the Vice interview. <laughs> now, Josh Holm has a busy schedule. Maybe it just so happened he was hanging out with the Eagles of Death Metal because of what had happened. Maybe. But also, Josh Holm was just hanging about off camera. When he comes in, he comes in, he sits next to Jesse on the couch with it. I think it's quite symbolic because the other band members are around the edge. The band members who were actually having the sights of guns trained on them Josh Holm comes in and sits there looking contrite and sort of like a little bit peely-wally and sort of appropriates some of the, the trauma and the grief from it. It's, mm-hmm. I, I thought, it, it, you know, is, is the word maudlin? I don't know. Maudlin, like M-A-U-D-L-I-N? Yeah. Or, yeah, uh-huh. I, th- I think... I said maudlin. It's morbid, it's mm-hmm. crass. Mm-hmm. There's, there's something about it that I'm just like, why are you in Ma- there? Maudlin's like drunken sentimentality, is it not? Romanticising grief, I thought. Yeah, that's what I would say. All right, okay. Romanticising grief, okay. There's, it just feels like there's an appropriation in there. The way it's set up, the way he's brought in, and I never, like, again, a bit like the camera thing. I never understood that. I was, surely your instinct would be like, guys, you you do this. This is not. I'll be here for you. I'm here to support you, but I'm off camera. This isn't my moment. But no, Josh Holmes out there in front of the camera acting as though he was somehow spiritually in the Bataclan with the 90 fucking victims of the Bataclan and fucking this band who were diving into cupboards to try and avoid gunshots. I just really didn't like that. Mm -hmm. Exploitative. Yeah, more than any of the other bullshit other than the Brody Dahl thing that you're bringing up. um, That put me off him. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, people have kind of gone off Josh Holmes a bit. I think he's one of those guys that... Folks are a little bit conflicted about him now. I think Queens of Stone Age, for most of their career, courted a pretty unanimously positive public sort of goodwill, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then something just shifted. Not even overnight, it just I started to they, they became older guys and it was like, it's not as cool when you're an old guy and you're acting like that. Maybe. You've got kids now, mate. I it in. <laughs> but it, it seems kind of pathetic. It's just, yeah, I, I just, I'm not, I think as a guy's ego has become more unchecked and Aye. maybe it's become more about him and... Yeah, I don't know. It, it it has soured me to them. I think even if their last two albums had been better than they were, I would probably be less of a fan anyway, um, because I don't feel as connected to them now, I guess. But hey, anyway. So there's another thing about Queens of Stone Age that I think is really important to mention uh, before we actually go through the albums track by track and chronologically. Queens of Stone Age and, and Josh Homme are all about tone. 
mm, yeah. one of the most distinctive sounding bands yeah. that that I can think of. Um, I mean, from a guitar perspective, before we talk about the other people that have performed them, from a guitar perspective, the the way he EQs guitars, the effects he uses on them, the fact that on records they often sound quite dry, quite close, the the rolled off top end, the really saturated middle, the the, the whistle that he gets in some of those solos, like. a very 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 creative and really interesting guitarist mm-hmm. to listen to and and that whole thing that he set out to do where he tried to create a band that people would recognize within the first three seconds of a song there are definitely songs where you hear the tone and you're like that sounds like Queens of Stone Age. absolutely a lot of it revolves around well it's on the wikipedia page and they call it the horn scale right mm-hmm. which, is his own, which is apparently his own variation of blue scale it's actually a lydian mode in a blue scale which is very unique you know not so much the actual way the actual scale itself but the way he plays it you know it's uh, usually doubling up notes so it's not necessarily all it's not a, a lot of his guitar playing isn't actually flashy as such mm-hmm. he's not a shredder you know he's not a a virtuoso by any stretch of the imagination when it comes to actual forward lead guitar technique but you can hear it in every single every single song I think maybe with the exception of the last two albums actually now that I think about it which sound a little, sound a little bit different but um, yeah, not, in a, not in a good way but um, <laughs> uh, yeah there's definitely a use of, of a particular type of scale that he uses on guitar which is this, the, the foundation of, of the sound of Queens of the Stone Age and I believe that was a very very deliberate choice in his part from the beginning it's like a bit Hendrix say, but he ordered it slightly, he says, but I'm sure he probably did, but it's actually something that existed before and he just didn't know about it. What it allows him to do is play some very melodic chords, but throw in notes that give it a slightly angular feel. You know, it doesn't sound like Weezer as a result, nothing against Weezer, but there are moments in Queen's of Stone Age you can imagine without that scale, they could almost sound Weezer-esque. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're quite direct, quite fuzzy, quite saturated and driving and stuff like that, but then he's throwing in these little elements and notes and some of the, the solos and parts and little refrains that he weaves through songs, like Little Sister probably being a good example, these little breaks that make it sound like a little little trick, it just makes it sound more angular mm-hmm. than it actually is, they're yeah. very melodic, generally speaking, but he gives them that little bit of panache. Yeah, he's basically using just a blue scale but putting some flats in it where you wouldn't put flats in it and that's what gives it it's just it's just off and the blues mm-hmm. just off and it does sound if you, if you, I suppose if you put it back into the normal scale it would sound very bluesy because mm-hmm. it's just rock and roll really isn't it really but it's also I mean, that's a technique that you know in a lot of the noise rock bands and, and bands like Jesus Lizard and even a, a lot of the amphetamine reptile stuff bassists for example would do that thing where they would dip down one note below or they would go up one note mm. above but it'd be very aggressively performed it'd be very like guttural especially uh, he does it in this sweet I mean sometimes his fucking guitar sounds like he's using an ebo or something like yeah. that you know mm. it's, it's like it's incredibly smooth and thick you know, really saturated. The tones are incredible, and doing that technique, but delivering it in that way, it doesn't have that harshness, but you still get the off kilteriness yeah. of it. 
he's just got such a distinctive style. You could, his little solos, as you say, they don't tend to be overindulgent. They're not hammered and you know in, incredibly technically demanding, but they have loads of panache. They have loads of flair in them. It, like his performance of quite simple solos is immaculate. He's he is he's a very good guitarist yeah. in an, in a somewhat understated mm. way. He reminds me a lot of, and I think the parallels can probably be found throughout the music as well, but he, he, he is like a stoner version of Jack White. Their, their playing styles are very, yeah. very similar. They have songs that sound similar. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they both have the same, they both have the same predilection for cheap guitars as well, weird and cheap guitars. He, he says he doesn't play Les Pauls and Strats and all that because he always wants to be playing like some really dodgy cheap guitars like he find in Japan and all that because it's like an element of his sound like Jack White. I think Jack White even uses like broken guitar effects pedals and stuff as well, going like one step further than I guess Josh Homme does. But yeah, the kit is what he, it's amazing to me that both of those guys can make that shitty stuff sound fucking amazing. You know, I'm not a huge fan of the White Stripes or Jack White stuff, but he does sit, he gets the tone right every single time. And so does, so does Josh Homme, you know, all the time. There's never, mm, maybe, the, maybe the last two albums, but there's never usually much where it feels as though they've made the wrong stylistic choice, even if I don't particularly like the song in question. Well, see, um, that is Sat by the Ocean, for example. Probably standout song on the last two albums, but that guitar line that it has going through it, the guitar mm-hmm. refrain has a distinctive sound to it. Mm-hmm. It has a really interesting kind of. It's got like a, a harmonic line mm-hmm. at the same time. He just has an incredible ear for that, for 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 taking a guitar line and instead of just having it, you know, clanking away, doing something really lush and interesting and making it a feature, mm-hmm. not just the, the notes, but the, the the actual delivery and the sound of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think the White Stripes comparison, yeah, I think that's quite fair. It's interesting that that sensibility or those sensibilities, especially where guitar is concerned, carry over into the work that he produces as well. Now we we did a humbug by the Arctic Monkeys in yeah, one of our episodes. You can hear it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that album sounds like Josh Holm pro- produced it. I mean, he plays in it as well in, in places, but you can hear him all the way through that record. Mm-hmm. Um, that that whether it's the acoustic stuff. On, on some of those tracks, like um, My Propeller, still sounds thick and lush, but it's, it's deep, it's got a bluesiness, it's got a stoneriness to I mean, it. He didn't produce that track, remember? That was the other guy. Well remembered, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> the one that stuck out to me when I was doing research was um, Crying Lightning. I was looking into it like that, that that album was done right after Era Vulgaris and there's a lot there's of there's a really fuzzy guitar on that isn't there mm-hmm. lots That's of similarities right. between the two records Um, the other one I would say that really drips with Josh Holmes' influence is Millionaire's Paradisiac. The second Millionaire album that we spoke about mm. Millionaire on the, the podcast with Babs and outside the Simeon Flock, different kettle of fish, but they went to record with Josh Holm. They actually they, they toured. I'm I'm talking pish. I've seen Queens of Stone Age at the Barras as well. Mm, what album times, was that? Songs right of the middle. Death. That would have been yes. Um, but yeah, sorry, they were supported at the Barras by Millionaire, and then Millionaire went and recorded with Josh Holm. And the Paradisiac album is so reminiscent of, uh, especially the kind of Songs for the Deaf era, Queens of Stone Age. Mm. It's quite caustic. Uh, the bass lines uh, at times veer into like Death from Above kind of territory, uh, and you know, even we, we, on the Muse episode, we talked about that lightning bolt thing of where the bass guitar is almost doing the job of a, a baritone guitar as well.
it's, it's a really interesting record sonically It's not as good a record as Millionaire's first album But sound wise it has bags of character And a lot of that character can really probably be put down to him um, and another aspect that I mean, obviously they've had some good bassists. Uh, Nicola Very really standout one. I love the way they alternate vocals in some of their better eras. You know, mm-hmm. it's not an option really anymore. Mark Lanigan having passed away, Nicola Very not being in the band. But if you look back through some of the really great moments oh, of Queens of Stone Age, Mark Lanigan, for example, took centre stage yeah. on them. Spoiler alert, I prefer Queen's of Stone Age when he's not singing. Oh, really? <laughs> when Josh Holmes yeah. not singing. Mm-hmm. All right. His falsetto annoys the fuck out of me. That's why, that's why I struggle to get on with him. I uh, respectfully disagree. Disagree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the boy's got a voice like Silk. It's amazing. <laughs> I, when he's not using his falsetto, I like it, but when he uses his falsetto, I'm, it just looks like nails on a blackboard to me. Um, I also think... They used Nicola Verri's voice brilliantly in Queens of Stone Age. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they, they knew, right, this song is a banger. It's got to be caustic. Get Nick on the vocals. I mean, some of the, some of the standout moments. Mm-hmm. The six shooter. Um, you think I ain't worth a dollar? Well, I'm a millionaire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, absolutely fucking iconic Nicola Verri mm-hmm. moments, mm-hmm. and he really fucking makes it. And that's that's what I mean. I think in that kind of period, from Rated R through Songs for the Death through uh, lullabies there, there was more of a communal sense of him ceding control of a certain track like you do that mm-hmm. in fact. I mean w- like see that one see the one that goes I know you know what's that called again quick and to the pointless so that quick and to the pointless when they recorded that when Nick Oliveri taking the lead he just did it as a guide track but they ended up just keeping it because they liked it his voice which is Again, like a nice approach, not being a perfectionist about it and mm-hmm. knowing when you've got something good. I did that that balance of the singing I thought was a great aspect of Queen's of Stone Age when they were at their best. Um mm-hmm. you obviously don't get it in the first album. Um Is that's why and we'll come to that, I think Rated R so good in particular, because you've got all the different voices on it. Drums. Um I'm putting this out there. There's no way that Songs for the Deaf would have been the album that it is if it wasn't for Dave Grohl's involvement. Um, yeah, I'm, and I don't just mean in the playing; I mean in the profile and the marketing. I don't, absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I think that this podcast would be the podcast that it is without Dave Grohl's involvement. It's <laughs> a good question. We just seem to keep trucking along like he does, don't we? <laughs> um, even when nobody asks for it, we're still fucking going. <laughs> um, I, th- I totally agree with that. Um, I was actually, when I was listening to that record, I always thought the drums in uh, No One Knows were amazing, but mm-hmm. they're not even the best on that record. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's very straightforward for Dave Grohl, that song. Um, it's that flare bit in the middle. Yeah, it's the flare, bit, it's the flare bit that kind of makes it. But when I was younger, I thought, oh man, that's fucking amazing. Overplaying for most of it, mm-hmm. the vast majority of the song is overplaying because they probably knew it was going to be a single. So it's like, well, I mean, I'm going, to, I'm on that song, right? And you're going to know that I'm on that song without even listening, without yeah. even knowing. I'm Crucially, on that record. he's in the video mm-hmm. as well, which yeah. is that, that's what I mean. It was a mm-hmm. big, big part of their marketing. Yeah. Do I think pound for pound it's better than most of the other albums? I mean, it's maybe slightly, slightly better than some of them, but I think that album is about the whole package it's about the band that he assembled about Lanigan about Grohl some of the old guard of the grunge movement coming back with this really vital the album um, I, I I think he is a huge huge part of that that record's success and then obviously his many cameos and playing live with them over the years and the affinity that they, they, they clearly have with each other 
They've enjoyed some really good drummers uh, in their time. We spoke about was his name uh, John Theodore. John Theodore is probably the be- the te- best technical drummer they've ever had because he is just a phenomenal player. So the Mazvola, so you know, had to be able to play literally anything that you're asked to do. And they had Joey Costello from Danzig. Yeah, um, and, and he's he, really good. I have to say that because he came in after Crow. Yeah, he, he basically was a Cove replacement because yeah. Cove did one tour of them, then left basically. And so. I, I kind of thought that was them at their best, like lineup wise, with, with, with Joey on on kit. He was a fucking tremendous drummer, but he didn't drag your attention away the way that Dave Grohl did. You know, Dave Grohl had that distracting element to him, like oh, he's like oh, Dave Grohl's playing. Oh, mm. I fucking mm-hmm. saw about that. Joey was a phenomenal player, but just seemed more part of a band, and they seemed like a really stable unit yeah. at that point, at least from the outside. Um, they record their drums in a pretty unusual way. I mean, the drum kit on Songs for the Deaf doesn't really sound much like a drum kit. Yes. Yeah, what was it recorded in? A really small room which had shit, which had like basically claustrophobic acoustics, which makes it sound dead. Yeah. And they did the drums and the cymbals separately. So, like, Dave Grohl. Had, Slayer method. Yeah, had apparently had like practice cymbals for when he was playing, for when he was doing the, the, the kit. And then. Basically dampened all the all the kit for the for the symbols, and uh, I think the producer said that like he actually was very thankful because like that was a really torturous process. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad he did that, but it was horrible to do. <laughs> um, there's so many different parts, obviously, that go to make it up, but they ha- they are a group that have excelled at making each key component relevant to the success of the whole. I mean, Nick Oliveri, in his own way, was very, very crucial to their success via his notoriety in the early days because mm-hmm. he gave them an edge. You know, whether or not that was necessarily good at a number of stages is clearly up for debate, but I think he did contribute to the lore around the band. Definitely, you know, and that interview I was speaking about earlier on uh, with the Guardian in 2005, one when a lot of lullabies to parallel for lullabies for this, this record came out, Lullabies came out, right? <laughs> um, he said, he actually says in an interview that Nick Oliveri was only there for camaraderie and nothing else. Who said that, Josh Holm? Mm-hmm. Which, is, which is weirdly diminishing of the songwriting Very. he brought to it, do you know what I mean? Because there's songs credited to him, he does vocals on a bunch of the songs and the, the two records that he's on. Um, he's quite I a vital that guy part. just bumps his gums a lot, doesn't he? Yeah, he's, he's, I don't think he's quite as bad as Gene Simmons, but you know, <laughs> you could certainly see how he, he, he talks a good game. He says that. He also says that. And I don't know if he's like he would just like start spouting stuff philosophical bullshit, mm-hmm. and then but um, he says it, and then if he's like, I'm sorry, that sounds really good, but I have no idea where I was going with that. Mm-hmm. So it kind of clues you in a little bit into his own persona as well. Mm-hmm. I think he knows he knows about the bullshit because he's he's feeding people it mm-hmm. regularly. You know, I don't think I don't think he's a hundred percent honest all the time. We should probably also make a mention of Troy Van Leeuwen. Um, mm-hmm. He was Jane's Addiction and Perfect Circle. Mm-hmm. He was in as well. Who, whilst they're maybe not up there in profile, with Nick Oliveri for one reason and Dave Grohl for another reason, he was a very reliable, I mean, very solid, but also just a very reliable presence. He seemed calm, sort of had a bit of a suave vibe about him. They were just really, really well balanced as a band. You, mm. the, every single part of the of the entity was kind of pulling towards the same goal. Everything was doing something. You weren't there wasn't a lot of dead weight kicking around Queen's Stone Age. They were mm. maximising most aspects of the, of the enterprise. Um, but I don't. I, I do think it is appropriate to to once again really emphasise though. Over all of that, to me, is the identifiable nature of Josh Holmes playing and the tones and the way he approaches guitar which really they're whilst I agree there are parallels with Jack White I think Josh Holmes sound is even more distinct um, and I, for me at least as a music fan more successfully integrated into good songs I think the vocals are a big part of it as well and the his vocals mm-hmm. his vocals the, the ones Mark hates the harmonising <laughs> the, the backing vocals and things so, like well, that are I, really I do agree. When we're going through the tracks, there's a, a few tracks that uh, Queens of Stone Age have got that you can imagine them being ragers in the, in the hands of another band. But that silky, breathy, softens it soften, soft way he approaches it, it really it tones it all down and creates something quite different. Yeah. Yeah, with the, with the use of that scale on guitar, it brings his vocals into the same I suppose, register. Yeah, it does, and, and it, as a result, that's why a lot of the vocal melodies sound unique because he's singing 
He's singing in a way which nobody really sings in. And the notes that he's chosen, there's no selection for even choruses. It's the Jim Morrison thing, isn't it? It is exactly that. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I think there are, I think, on particularly on like Clockwork in the new album, I think there's a lot mm-hmm. of comparisons to The Doors to be found mm-hmm. on those two records. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he has. I think it does like the 70s quite a lot. There's a lot of tea, there's a lot of glam, glam influences in some there's of the stuff as well. And stuff yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he, I think he's uh, definitely a child of the 70s. You can even tell by his look, actually, mm-hmm. just the way that he looks. And, mm-hmm. you know. Also, something that I never really fully noticed until I did the research for this is the use of like, vocal effects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With varying degrees of success, I think I have to say. Yeah. Um, like sometimes I like it and sometimes I don't. He knows a good Texan tuxedo, though. Doesn't he? Mm, does I? What do you think of Vicky? Is he hot? Ginger Elvis. <laughs> you like Elvis? I do. <laughs> how, how do you feel about Ginger? I like Dawson. Yeah, I'd say he's a fairly good looking chap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm. I'm amazed that he's forty nine. I thought he was older. No, I I'm don't. Horrified, I actually. Yeah, the, the, I hadn't really done much research into his age until I was in the car last night, and Jason said to me, "He's like, oh, you know, he started Caius. Do you know he, he he was in Caius when he was nineteen? I was like, fuck off, mate. What? I was in Caius when he was fourteen. Yeah, but like when he was famous, he was <laughs> famous. Aye. He was nineteen, and I was like, okay, that makes him uh, like mid twenties when he did Queens of the Stone Age. I was like, right, cool, mm-hmm. horrifying. Yeah, mm-hmm. the Greta Thunberg of uh, rock music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> But he's not owning fucking right wing cunts on bars. So. Exactly. <laughs> he just hangs mm-hmm. about with them. Exactly. It's like the opposite. Actually, her whole um, email me at small dick energy <laughs> at whatever is quite jock as well. Is. <laughs> there we go. Nexus Greta Thunberg to Josh Holm in mm-hmm. one step. Um, okay, well, how about we put a lid in it for now okay. and we'll come back next week and we will take a mini tour through the discography of Queens of Stone Age and we'll talk about lullabies to paralyze in a bit more detail and we'll do the first <laughs> nexus of 2023 yep cool feeling good yeah now uh, put on your fucking animal skins and go back out into the storm <laughs> oh. that is Scotland in January honestly I, I can't fucking bear it I'm going in the cupboard storm is coming Exactly. I'm going on, you know, with the boiler, I'm going under the boiler in the cupboard. It's going to be there. You're a wizard, Harry. <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to burrow. Someone okay. fish me out next week. Lure me out with a bit of cheese. The boy under the stairs, we shall get you. <laughs> <laughs> See you then. See you. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.